Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Roy Fletchner, author of St. Patrick Retold, The Legend and History of Ireland's Patron Saint, published by Princeton University Press in 2019 and just coming out this month on paperback in time for your St. Patrick's Day holiday. Uh, Roy is the Associate Professor at the School of History at University College in Dublin. St. Patrick Retold won the Hagiography Society Book Prize in 2020. Roy, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. Well, I'm excited to get into St. Patrick, but before we do, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, like you uh, said, I am lecturer at University College Dublin. I specialize in early medieval history of Europe and the Mediterranean. I got my first degree from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which is where I'm from. Uh, Before I embarked on an academic career, I had a previous career as a journalist, also in Jerusalem. And uh, having completed my BA, one thing led to another, and I found myself in Oxford doing a couple of degrees, so a master's and a doctorate. And um, throughout the course of my studies, I developed a strong interest in what is known in the jargon as intellectual history Mm -hmm. uh, of the British Isles, so Anglo-Saxon England and uh, early medieval Ireland, an interest that I uh, developed, which has also uh, given rise to quite a few publications, including this book. Um, Thereafter, I um, continued to Cambridge, where I was a uh, junior research fellow at Trinity uh, College, that's Trinity College, Cambridge, not Dublin, uh, for five years uh, before um, coming to uh, Dublin and happily uh, embarking on a career as a, a lecturer there. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Well, that's wonderful, Roy. So in this most recent book, St. Patrick Retold, I, I'd like to start just by learning a little bit from you about the sources that we have to work with. What what are the uh, the extant sources of our knowledge of St. Patrick? What does that tell, help us know about who he was? And, and what maybe are some of the challenges or opportunities for trying to reconstruct this famous saint's life? That's a very important question, Ryan. It's, um, you know, it hits exactly um, on the issue of how do we know what we think we know? about uh, St. Patrick and how his biography has been written by generations of uh, followers and academics. The answer is, um, as is the case with so many other uh, late antique and early medieval personalities, that we have very little to go by. But nevertheless, in comparison with other historical figures of Patrick's age, 
we are very lucky to have two writings by St. Patrick himself, so uh, we can hear it from his own mouth. And uh, these are two texts that are known as the uh, Confessio and the Letter to the Soldiers of Caroticus. These are modern titles for these texts, and I'll, I'll give you a brief summary of, of both. So the Confessio is uh, Patrick's autobiography, which he composed towards the end of his life. We know this because he tells us uh, as much. It is probably not as revealing as he would like it to be. It showcases his literary ingenuity as someone who uh, knew the Bible inside out. So the uh, text is infused with biblical citations and infused with analogies between him and biblical personalities, especially prophets. Uh, Patrick was always keen to stress uh, his talent, his unique talent, uh, to receive prophecy. But it also drops some very important leads uh, that allow us to construct aspects of his biography. So he gives us a few uh, bare bones details that are very precious, but very difficult to place on a time scale, for example. So uh, we cannot use anything that Patrick tells us to set his absolute dates. We simply don't know when he lived. Um, most historians would believe that he lived in the fifth century, possible, but a fourth century date is not impossible. And uh, I will, I'll come back to these details later, but just a couple of words about the other text that he had left us. So that was a very brief introduction to the uh, Confessio, his own autobiography, and the other text um, hugely interesting uh, piece of work is a letter of condemnation that he wrote to a British warlord, perhaps a king. So Patrick was in Ireland at that time. That warlord was in Britain. But that warlord named Caroticus and his soldiers have raided one of Patrick's camps where Patrick was training Christians to be. In the technical um, jargon, they were catechumens, so they were being trained to uh, receive baptism for the first time. And Caroticus did what many other powerful individuals did at the time, which was to engage in slaving. So he raided the camp, killed some of Patrick's uh, new converts, kidnapped others, for the purpose of selling them on as slaves. And so the um, letter that Patrick wrote to Caroticus is a letter of condemnation. He tells us that it is the second letter that he had written to Caroticus. The first one doesn't survive, but in the first one, he urged Caroticus to free them, all the captives. In the second, he urges Caroticus again to free them, but uh, he had despaired of the possibility that Caroticus will ever let them go. So he's concentrating mainly on the condemnation and the excommunication of Caroticus. And in hmm. both of these texts, Patrick gives us a number of autobiographical details about himself. So these are the contemporary sources we have of Patrick's life. Any other sources we have about Patrick are later sources. Um, they are not informed directly by any reliable historical account from Patrick's time. 
they are infused with legendary material. This is not to say that they're not interesting and not important. They're very important for the way in which Patrick has been commemorated, the way in which we remember him now. Uh, but they're not the sort of sources that you quarry for reliable historical uh, data. Hmm. You've talked a little bit about some of the, the difficulty in nailing down exact dates for Patrick's life. But either way, Patrick lived at this very interesting period in history, right at the end of the Roman Empire in Britain. And, and you talk about how some of the, the task left for you, even if we don't know a ton of details about Patrick himself, is to to paint the relief or the, you know, we, we see him in silhouette against this very, very interesting period in history. So what, what can we learn about the late Iron Age as we're entering into this new medieval era? And what does that tell us about the kind of life that Patrick lived? So I'll try to answer this question with as much recourse as I can to Patrick's own, own biography rather than just give you a lecture about early <laughs> medieval, uh, not even sort of late antique uh, Britain. Um, so Patrick, in many ways, was a typical Roman aristocrat. So he was a Roman citizen living in Britain. He tells us that he was the son of a decurion. A decurion is a member of a Roman curia, so a Roman town council. Someone with official duties to discharge, which included things like uh, road maintenance, maintaining public buildings, but especially collecting taxes. That was the main responsibility of the decurion, certainly at this time. Um, but in Patrick's day, uh, whether he lived in uh, the late fourth or early fifth uh, century, uh, being a decurion was very hard work because the Roman Empire has been in and out of a number of different economic and military crises. Certainly in Britain, uh, the legions were about to withdraw. So by the end of the first third of the fifth century, Roman rule in Britain, as we know it, uh, comes to an end, although there might be certain pockets within Britain where there is uh, a certain continuity of Roman culture in various ways. But overall, the picture is uh, that we are heading towards the demise of Roman rule in Britain. So that is the time in which Patrick uh, grows up and in which his father has to discharge these duties as a uh, decurion. We also know that Patrick's father was a deacon, a deacon as in the church office of the deacon, that his grandfather was a priest. Uh, we are given the names of these personalities. So the father is Calpurnius, and the grandfather is Potitus. So it seems to be quite the clerical family that Patrick is born to, even though by his own account, he himself wasn't particularly devout as he was uh, growing up. But the Roman Empire at this time, being Christian, and certainly Britain under Roman occupation, being solidly a Christian place with Episcopal hierarchy and all the normal things that uh, make a church anywhere else. Um, so Patrick was no stranger to uh, Christianity. Christianity by that stage was also an aspect of Roman identity in addition to Roman citizenship and certainly in addition to, uh, at least in Patrick's case, being or holding a, uh, a leadership role in the 
community on behalf of the Roman uh, province. Another thing that we know about uh, the decurionship is that it was a hereditary role. So Patrick was due to take over from his father on the Roman uh, curia. Um, we might get into maybe later the question of how all this might explain his departure to, uh, to Ireland, but we'll save that bit for a bit later. But in terms of the Roman environment that Patrick uh, grew up in, we're also told that Patrick, or rather Patrick's family, uh, owned at least uh, two residences, one in the countryside in a place called Banavem Taborniae. That's one of two places that are named in Patrick's uh, writings. Sadly, we cannot identify exactly where it was, but thanks to the fact that we know that Patrick's father was a decurion, then we can assume that there was a substantial Roman town nearby where Patrick's father served on the town council because this place, uh, this Banavim Tabunia place is, is rural. We're told that it's a, it's a vicus, so either a village or a very small town. Um, the most likely identification for the nearby town is Carlisle. That it's a pretty convincing case has been has been made uh, for that, and that like many typical aristocratic Roman families, Patrick's family owned quite a lot of slaves, and Patrick talks about that. Um, and slavery is certainly something that figures prominently in Patrick's uh, writing, in well, in regard to his own family uh, background, but also uh, his story of him falling uh, captive and being taken away uh, to Ireland to work as a slave. And then Caroticus's uh, soldiers kidnapping his own catechumens and enslaving them. Uh, and there are various other little instances of so captivity is a very, very powerful uh, motif in Patrick's writings. And again, it is also a motif that ties in very strongly with the idea of what it meant to live within the Roman Empire um, at a time when um, the idea of slavery was being reconfigured by the empire. So um, a century or so before, the empire or the economy in the empire would still have been very much a slave-run, slave-driven economy. Uh, but this is much less so in Patrick's time, but still slavery and enslavement is a strong um, identifier of what it meant to be to be Roman at all times. So uh, this, if you want, sort of a, a bare bones uh, account of uh, the Roman connections of Patrick at this time and uh, life in Roman Britain. Yeah, that's it's a quite interesting, Roy. And you've started to hint at some of these themes already, but I think one of the most in, uh, interesting components of your book is you start to to notice how even by Patrick's own account, the story of his famous abduction and, and slavery um, was questioned by some of, of his own family members later in his life. So what would have been some of the potential reasons why Patrick's famous captivity might have been called into question? What uh, you, you've talked about uh, the, the role that he was 
set to inherit from his father as the the decurion and 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 maybe just a little bit about what what the role of patrick's wealth um has to play in this transfer of of this young british roman citizen into uh into his sojourns in ireland sure so one thing that i emphasize throughout the book is just how contradictory uh, Patrick's personality was. This is not unusual for any great historical personality, uh, not even unusual for saints. Mm -hmm. But previous biographies, I think, have not stressed that aspect that much. And by saying that there are contradictions to him or that there is an ambiguity to him, I don't just mean that his followers and um, successive biographies have identified ambiguities, but that Patrick himself in his writings tells us how, yeah. con well, how, well, not but how, how controversial uh, he was. Um, so I, I think I didn't know that earlier. He's not, he's not shying away from that, but he's making it clear that you did have these two narratives to him, his own narrative account, and a rival account by his detractors. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do, which uh, I've told you already, is insofar as possible to try to reconstruct what his detractors might have said. What it is about, or what it was about uh, Patrick that they objected to uh, so much. And Patrick does tell us that he had committed some kind of boyhood sin before the age of 16 that he revealed to uh, a friend in secret, but that friend um, betrayed his trust and passed on that secret. He tells us that later on in life, when he was already in Ireland and operating as a missionary, he was put on trial by his elders in Britain. Uh, he leaves it unclear as to whether or not uh, he actually went to Britain to defend himself or not. But the outcome of the trial seems quite clear. He was, um, he was convicted or condemned in one way or another, if not convicted. So there was certainly something uh, in Patrick's life that haunted his reputation uh, throughout his, his career, um, to some extent haunted his posthumous reputation as well. In trying to reconstruct uh, what has what he might have done, or what might have caused it, if he's innocent and hasn't done anything, but what, what the allegations might have been. And supposedly the challenge for a biographer there is to, on the one hand, not to be judgmental of the mm -hmm. historical personality, uh, you know, what, a, what might have been considered wrongdoing in his time by our standards uh, might be completely innocent. Um, but at the same time, not to be too reverential towards uh, Patrick, which, which is always a temptation for a biographer because he spent so much time uh, studying personality, working uh, very closely uh, with that personality, um, that you begin to, uh, 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 to value it to such an extent that it becomes uh, difficult to take a more objective uh, stance in regard to him. So the challenge for me was to try to walk that, uh, that thin line. So what I came up with are various speculations, and I do uh, say as much in the book. I do call them speculations because that's what they are. Um, we don't really have the 
um, strong, hard historical evidence to go by. But these speculations based on what we know uh, of Roman law at the time and what we know about the fate of the Curians and sons of the Curians elsewhere in the empire at that time, but also piecing together some hints from within Patrick's biography. So there are a number of scenarios. I'll give you, I'll give you one scenario that has certainly attracted attention after the book was published. So around the end of the um, fourth century, but also into the fifth, when discharging the obligations of a decurion could have been not only difficult, but also uh, dangerous. I mean, if, the, uh, if many provinces of the empire are falling into uh, poverty and disrepair, it is very difficult to shake people up for money, for <laughs> tax. And so there was a tendency, this again, from, from the fourth century already, uh, for the Curians to try and somehow sneak out of their duties. So to defect from their decurion, from their office. One convenient way of doing that was by joining the clergy. <laughs> so, um, Roman law initially allowed decurions who joined the clergy to relieve themselves from their duties on their Roman curia uh, and to retain their wealth, but then you have successive Roman laws that limit this prerogative uh, by decreeing, for example, that they have to uh, give up some of their wealth or that their children have to inherit their place uh, on the curia, on the town council, uh, instead of them. But nevertheless, we find the curians uh, constantly trying to wriggle their way out of this office throughout the empire. And this phenomenon has come to be known as the flight of the Curialis. Curialis is another name for the Curian. So one of the suggestions that I'm making is perhaps Patrick might have been part and parcel of this phenomenon. So uh, we know that his father held both the Curianship and uh, uh, an ecclesiastical office. So he might have been a part of this uh, pattern of uh, trying to uh, leave the office of the Curian, but then handing over his role to Patrick, or at least having to do that. And Patrick, maybe together with uh, his father, agreed that he too might do what the Curians have done elsewhere and take, take to flight, basically leave their uh, place of habitation, go somewhere else with the family wealth, and in that way, not to threaten not to threaten the family wealth by him having to surrender part of it if he would have wanted to withdraw from the office of being a decurion. Again, this is admittedly a speculative narrative. It's not impossible, but it is speculative. But then, of course, the question is, um, if he were to go to Ireland, as we know that he uh, did, uh, how would he be able to then retain his family wealth if that was the objective of the whole uh, exercise? Ireland did not have a monetary economy, unlike Britain, unlike Roman Britain. There are only so many things that would have been of value in Ireland. Silver, for one thing, is, is a possibility. We know that silver did 
uh, carried value in Ireland at the time. Uh, but another thing which we definitely know carried value in Ireland was slaves. And we know that Patrick owned slaves. Uh, Patrick, like so many other Roman aristocrats and so many other churchmen as well, had no objections whatsoever to uh, slavery. There were no objections in principle to that. Uh, there were certain um, limits to the exploitation of slavery, to the cruelty that um, you would have submitted slavery to, but slavery as an institution was not something that the slave objected to, that the, sorry, that the church objected to uh, at, this, at this time. So one possibility that uh, presents itself is that uh, Patrick left for Ireland, taking his family slaves uh, with him as a way of maintaining his source of wealth. This might also give us a background as to why some of his contemporaries took issue with his uh, departure as someone who might have, for example, let, let down his community, so a community leader or someone who was destined to become a community leader, abdicating from this uh, duty and not uh, fulfilling it, but also perhaps trying to um, gain financially from a situation that other people had suffered a great deal from and doing something that they couldn't have done and might have, might have wanted to. So this is a possible uh, uh, scenario, one of the scenarios that I raise in the book, again, with a lot of caveats, so we don't know if this really happened, but it's possible that this, uh, this might uh, give us a background to the allegations that haunted Patrick throughout his life. It's very interesting. The other big area of of speculation where we can't know entirely what was happening, but it is very important to understanding this Patrick, which of course we know now as as the, the patron saint of Ireland, who was instrumental at least in part in bringing the Christian religion to the Irish people. Um, there, he's bringing a, a religious culture into uh, a culture that already had some sort of religion um, and spirituality. So, you, you mentioned that uh, Patrick was really—he viewed himself as at the edge of the world and in the end of days. Uh, what can we know about the missionary endeavor of Patrick? Who else was engaged in the Christianization? of Ireland at this time, and what were some of the the effects of this religious exchange? Sure. So, well, first thing to say about Patrick's religiosity is that I, I don't see any contradiction between the speculative narrative that I just raised mm -hmm. and between Patrick's genuine commitment to religion. I On right. that, I take him at his word, and uh, I also take him at his word that he was a keen and um, devoted missionary who was driven by a sense of prophetic calling, but also by a strong apocalyptic sense. He did, presumably like many other Roman cultured people in Britain, uh, he, he experienced some sort of... Um, apocalyptic um, turmoil, if you want, because these are people who were seeing the uh, world that they were so familiar with uh, unravel before their eyes. So 
those are the terms in which Patrick describes his own missionary zeal. So he sets out to Ireland. By the time he uh, does that, so this is you know, something that I haven't mentioned clearly, but has to be said. So according to Patrick's account, he is kidnapped, uh, taken over to Ireland. Uh, he's a slave for six years. He then manages to escape, comes back to Britain, um, climbs up through the ecclesiastical hierarchy, it's first a deacon, then a priest, and um, he then becomes a bishop, although there's no mention as to who consecrates him and, and, and what are the circumstances for that. He could just have been a, a self-proclaimed bishop, not that unusual at that time. But having heard um, voices, having uh, received a vision when in Britain, he takes off back to Ireland and is absolutely determined to embark on a conversion enterprise. How big it was, we don't know, but a conversion enterprise, which by his account is a very successful one. Patrick doesn't give us all the nuts and bolts of his missionary trade, which we would have liked to have, um, but he does tell us, for example, that in order to be able to win souls throughout Ireland, it was a very good idea to um, make connections with local dignitaries, with kings, people who could facilitate your mission, uh, give you protection along the way, which was absolutely necessary, um, but also people who could vouch for your status as an aristocrat. And when Patrick tells us that he was riding with kings, he tells us that not just as a way of um, informing us that he needed protection, but also because riding with kings was a way in which those kings um, conferred status on him. He was considered worthy to ride alongside them in majesty, if you want, and that would have uh, proclaimed his authority throughout the Irish provinces in which he was trying to evangelize. He also seems to have targeted quite a lot of uh, aristocrats. Women in particular seem to uh, figure as, um, uh, as, as, as individuals that uh, he was uh, keen on converting the new faith. And um, by his account, trying to convert them not just to becoming ordinary Christians, but to becoming uh, nuns. Although so, so exactly what, what it would have meant to be a nun at this time, we're not, we're not quite sure. Uh, we can imagine that the sort of Christianity that he would have imparted uh, then would have been one that was heavily influenced uh, by Roman Christianity because that was his own, his own background. So in that respect, he was not just uh, a religious missionary, he was also a cultural missionary. So there were aspects of Roman culture that he was imparting alongside religion. And you could also imagine that one of the reasons why some of the Irish who converted would have been keen to convert, certainly the aristocrats among them, was that you know, they simply wanted to keep up with the Joneses. So they would have uh, heard about Romans in Britain or maybe met some and would have known that their uh, culture in many ways uh, is, uh, or rather they would have envied that, that Roman culture in many ways. It was very, very wealthy. They had towns, uh, they had standing armies, they had all sorts of things that the Irish uh, didn't have. 
Um, so the idea of being able to partake in that Roman culture would be a huge bonus for them, and that's another um, role that Patrick plays there. He also asked about other missionaries in, in Ireland at the time, and um, uh, Patrick, of course, tells us nothing about other missionaries, but nevertheless, we have other independent accounts of uh, missionaries in Ireland. Uh, the most prominent among them, and one that we know by name, is Palladius. Uh, Palladius, uh, unlike Patrick, um, has one huge advantage when it comes to the way historians are able to tell his story, which is that he is attested independently in sources. So Patrick, we only know from his own accounts, whereas Palladius is attested in other accounts, in particular, a chronicle by a chronicler named uh, Prosper of Aquitaine, who tells us that in 431, he was sent by a Pope, Pope Celestine, to the Irish who believe in Christ. So in a way, um, he was sent to um, preach to the converted. So we're not quite sure what the deal is there, but some Christian community or community that aspired to be Christian in Ireland asked for a bishop to be sent to them, to preach to them. And this is the role that Palladius plays. And in the legacy of Patrick, in the uh, way that Patrick was mythologized to other generations, uh, Palladius is always a thorn in the, in the backside of the story because he's, he's the competition, but he's not just any competition. He was sent from Rome. So this is you know, the highest authority you can think of that he was endowed with mm. uh, to preach to the Irish, uh, something which Patrick cannot claim. Of course, uh, later legendary sources would also give Patrick certain Roman connections and connections to other important saints uh, in Gaul, but there's absolutely no historical evidence to, uh, to validate that. So there certainly was some Christianity around Patrick's time or even before Patrick's time in Ireland. It was brought in either by Palladius or even earlier or in addition by other uh, Christians operating uh, in Ireland who might have arrived from Britain, who didn't necessarily set out to Ireland as missionaries, but having arrived there as Christians, um, other people might simply have uh, fallen under the uh, the influence and the charm of this of this of this new religion, and have begun to uh, to practice it. So um, that is the missionary atmosphere, if you want, in Patrick's time. It's quite interesting. Well, as we wrap up our discussion of your book, we yeah, I'm going to ask a very difficult question. I'm going to ask you to cover about a millennium and a half in, in just a few minutes. But essentially, how do we how do we get this reception history of of Patrick uh, throughout the ages so that you get this? I mean, you we now have a there's a, a holiday that's widely celebrated. I you know I used to live in Chicago and we would dye the river green and drink green beer. Uh, you know how so how do we get from from this early British uh, kidnappy uh, missionary with all of this controversy surrounding him to uh, to the the veneration of this saint as it as he's celebrated today and and along the way if you can tell us how the snakes were driven out that would be wonderful <laughs> yes indeed so um well I, i'll try to be brief and i'm not sure i can sum up uh, a century uh, sorry, a millennium <laughs> and a half but i will sum up some highlights 
So a lot of the image of Patrick in which it has in which it is known to us. So um, uh, a lot of the framing of, of, of Patrick as a figure of veneration um, comes from the late 7th century and has to do with the propaganda emanating from Armagh, Armagh being an important ecclesiastical center in Ireland uh, at the time, um, which appropriated Patrick as its patron saint. And in order to celebrate Patrick, um, two very important and influential uh, biographies of Patrick were written in Armagh at the end of the 7th century, one by uh, Muiraku, another by Tirakon. They're similar and different in all sorts of ways. They also draw on similar sources, uh, including Patrick's own writings. Um, but they add a lot of legendary material to Patrick, material that connects him to events and personalities in uh, the real history of Ireland, in a mythical history uh, of Ireland, but certainly um, reinforcing this connection with Armagh, making Patrick the first bishop of Armagh, and as such, um, the first bishop of the Irish in general, um, reinforcing the narrative of Patrick as converter of Ireland as a whole, not just of some uh, communities here and there. So just to emphasize again, Patrick's connection to Armagh is something we have absolutely no historical validation. Mm. It is, as far as we can tell, uh, a seventh century legend connected with Armagh trying to uh, propagate its position. Um, it then continues thereafter, by, by continues, I mean his, his veneration continues thereafter and spreads um, throughout Europe. So uh, certainly not just in Ireland, Patrick is venerated in, in Britain. He is, uh, there's a legend of him uh, being a founding abbot at Glastonbury. Uh, Glastonbury is a very important cult center uh, for Patrick through the early Middle Ages. Uh, he's venerated uh, different places throughout the European uh, continent. And several new um, additions are made to the patrician myth, some of which have absolutely nothing to do with any of the legends that are made up in Ireland, or certainly, certainly nothing to do with historical Patrick uh, himself. One of them is indeed the story about the snakes, and uh, yeah, very, very, very <laughs> famous uh, story associated with Patrick, so Patrick banishing snakes. Uh, it's probably quite an early legend that was told about him, although the earliest written accounts of this come to us from the early 13th century, from a number of different sources. Um, one of the sources, interestingly, uh, Gerald of Wales, um, tells this story about Patrick banishing all serpents from Ireland. He tells us that it's a story that he had heard, so it was, a, it was orally told and retold, um, but he doesn't believe it. And uh, he says he doesn't believe it because he had encountered other accounts which have claimed that Ireland was free from snakes since as far back as anybody can remember. And he's right, because the earliest account we have of Ireland uh, possessing no snakes at all comes from a third century text by a geographer called Salinas, um, it is then repeated by different, by different sources, including by the Venerable Bede in the 8th century, who tells us that, tells us that the uh, uh, land of Ireland is so hostile to snakes 
that if you sail to Ireland on a boat with snakes on it, when the snakes catch a whiff of the Irish air, uh, when they're still at sea, they all perish. And um, that's one of the powers of Irish manuscripts, if you didn't know that. If you take an Irish manuscript and you scrape it, so you run it through a grate, and then you uh, drink the scrapings with a glass of water, that will cure you of snake bites. And beef, beef tells us as much. Uh, so that's that, that, that's yeah that, that's as far as as as, yeah, as Patrick's banishing snakes is concerned. We have other Irish saints that we're told banished snakes. The earliest account of any Irish saint banishing a snake is actually told about Saint Columba by his biography. Out of none, Saint Columba is a sixth uh, century uh, saint. So. Uh, Sadly, and I hate to spoil it for the listeners, um, Patrick is not unique in being a saint in Ireland who banishes uh, snakes. St. Patrick's Day, uh, which you mentioned, uh, important day in the uh, Irish calendar, celebrated on the 17th of March. The date is absolutely arbitrary uh, because we know nothing about the actual death date of Patrick. We have uh, two uh, dates that we uh, are given, but these are retrospective from the uh, 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 sixth century. So one is 457 and the other is 493. These are the death dates given in the Irish annals, but again, the, 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 they're not anchored in any uh, historical fact. So the earliest uh, accounts we have of uh, St. Patrick's uh, Day being celebrated uh, in Ireland in um, an official way, if you want, uh, in a recognized way, where it's recognized the official calendar uh, that comes from the 17th century. Um, we know that St. Patrick's Day is also exported elsewhere because at the same time it's being celebrated elsewhere uh, in Europe. Uh, by the 18th century, it is being celebrated in America, in the uh, New World. Um, and um, the earliest evidence we have for parades taking place uh, on St. Patrick's Day, uh, actually quite late, so parades in Ireland are only recorded uh, in the early uh, 20th uh, century, and of course have become um, a staple of uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, celebrations, not just uh, in Ireland where they continue, but um, in um, many Anglophone uh, countries around uh, the world, mainly a Catholic um, veneration, but not only. One of the interesting thing about, things about the veneration of Patrick in Ireland was that he could have been and he was venerated by Protestants and Catholics alike, hmm. uh, venerated in very different ways, but nevertheless, he was at once a unifying factor because uh, both could rally around him as a national saint, either a national uh, uh, Protestant or a national Catholic saint, uh, so a unifying factor, but also a separating uh, factor, a factor of separating the two groups because uh, they venerated him in, in quite different ways. But yeah, we, we, we don't have much time to get into the detail of that. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I can see that you probably want me to speed up some of <laughs> No, well, I mean, it, it leaves our listeners a good reason to go and, and, and purchase their own copy of the book <laughs> if, if they want to track that down further. 
Roy, you've been so kind to come and talk with us about your book. I wonder before we go, if you might be willing to share anything that you're currently working on that we can be looking forward to from you. Sure, gladly. Um, The project that I'm involved in now is a book on the social uh, consequences, implications of religious conversion in early medieval Europe. So a social history, if you want, of religious conversion. So um, religious conversion, as I mentioned uh, very briefly also in the context of Patrick, is not only about religion, it's often about acculturation, so absorbing something from uh, another culture. We see quite a lot of that in the uh, early medieval period in, um, in, in Europe. So this is an attempt to look beyond missions, beyond the connections between missionaries and aristocrats. So looking beyond what we know as the top-down conversion model and asking questions that are aimed more at the lower rungs of society. So what, what, what did peasants have to gain from this? Um, what was peasant conversion like? What actually changed in your life? What did you retain? Uh, how might religious conversion have affected the way you conceptualized your family, your kin, your gender? Uh, what did it mean to affiliate yourself with the church, also economically, because there were strong economic ties between peasants and churches? What did it mean for slavery, for example, just as in the context of Patrick? Because we know that the church continued to own slaves. Uh, it has it also done a lot to free slaves throughout the medieval period, but at the same time, um, we see slaves being purchased uh, by churches um, um, and doing various kinds of um, uh, labor for churches in different capacities. Um, so the question there is about social inequality and how sometimes the social inequality is turned into more of an equality, if you want, because the church does every now and again, uh, free slaves under certain conditions. And it does that very much as part of its religious uh, agenda and a part of its moral economy. So that's that's the, that's the project. Well, that sounds like a very interesting project. I can't wait until it's ready to, to read. Uh, we've been talking with Roy Fletchner, author of the book, St. Patrick Retold, The Legend and History of Ireland's Patron Saint, available now from Princeton University Press and coming out this month on paperback. Roy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Ryan. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in History. You can visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com where you can find more great interviews. And I invite you to like and share and subscribe and share with friends and spread the word about what we're trying to do here at the New Books Network. That's it for now. I hope you have a great day.